G'day, everyone. Welcome back to Talking Leadership. Thank you for joining us today. By way of introduction, my guest for over 25 years has been working in financial, educational, service, and product-based organizations in various managerial roles from quality assurance through to financial management, business banking, and branch management. By 2016, reached a turning point, feeling that she was teetering on the edge of burnout. She looked towards building her resilience with a question surely there was something better than what she was currently doing. She then started exploring options and completing further studies, becoming a success principal certified trainer, health and life coach, and neuro-linguistic programming practitioner. And then pairing this with her corporate knowledge and understanding of leadership, then paves the way for her to help others overcome their resilience challenges and later cultural barriers in their workplaces. Let's welcome to the podcast, Jody Walkerling. How are you going, Jody? Beautiful. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It's a pleasure. And I'd also like to welcome back to the podcast, and he's, he's been out in the desert of the workplace in, in uh, the legal world. Welcome back to Ben Deverson. How are you, Ben? Uh, I'm good, Eric. I'm sorry, I've just been out there trying to develop my resilience. Uh, <laughs> so I'm really keen to actually go back a few steps and listen to Jody tonight. Jody, let's start at uh, topic area number one. What is resilience? Yeah, it's a really good place to start because if we're talking about resilience, it's the foundation of what we actually, what are we working for? So I look at it from an individual point of view as two parts to it. So the first thing is creating an environment in your life and things in your life where you are better able to stay calm and deal with the stresses in your life from a calm, rational point of view. So that's kind of the first side. And there's lots of things you can do to to build that up in yourself. The second side is all of us are affected by stress and had our resilience tested at various stages. It's part of being human. The second side is when you are, when you've got your resilience tested, to spot it in yourself and to bring yourself back to calm as as quickly as possible. So resilience is kind of the both. And and that's, that's explaining it from an individual perspective, but but it relates to an organisational perspective as well. To unpack that a bit, I can understand resilience from an individual point of view, from the organisational point of view. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so from an organisational point of view, um, people who are resilient and who are dealing with the stresses in a calm, rational way are basically working more from clearer thought and having practices that that sort of lead to productivity and positive relationships and collaboration and innovation and all that sort of stuff. So building resilience for the individual is obviously good for the individual, but building resilience for the individual in the organisation is good for the organisation and creating things in the organisation that help facilitate that resilience is also really good for the organisation as well because it leads to productivity, collaboration, innovation, staff retention, all sorts of engagement, all sorts of positive things that leaders want in their organisations. So, Jody, let's talk a little bit about resilience and the leader a bit more. So I want to understand from your perspective how a good quality leader builds resilience in themselves, how they perhaps display that day-to-day, but equally how they can encourage their team to build resilience. Yep. So I'm really glad you start, You said in part of that is build their own resilience because when I'm working with leaders, that is always the first step mm-hmm. because building their own resilience means that they are setting a vibe and example and a 
positive environment for the rest of their team. So building themselves is is the first point. So you asked in that, how does a leader build their own resilience? There's all sorts of ways of doing that. And a lot of it is a lot of real self, I don't know, self-analysis and self-awareness. I work with people for building their own resilience on on three kind of levels. So the first level is if you are feeling a stress tested, bring yourself back to calm. So the in the moment kind of stuff. The second is lifestyle and mindset things. So that's things, obviously mindsets, there's a lot of things that go under that, but the lifestyle things are things like meditation and mindfulness, sleep, exercise, diet, relationships, work-life balance. There's a whole stack of them that make a big difference with how you deal with the stresses in your life. And the third level is most people have underlying subconscious things, which is as a coach is one of my favorite things to dig through with people, because they're things that often will hold people back or will cause people to react in a certain way that isn't desirable. So by leaders building their own resilience, they are then basically setting an example for the people around them. They're also setting almost like an element of safety, because If you think most people can relate to times where they've worked for somebody who they can tell is stressed and not really dealing well with the stresses that are are going on. As an employee, and that's your boss, think back, are you likely in that circumstance to tell them about issues that you're having? Are you likely to say, listen, I'm really looking to expand my career or my learning and do X, Y, Z? You pretty much, people won't do those things. They won't communicate issues. They won't communicate concerns. They won't bring up their own needs or their own aspirations because it's almost like a, it's either a protecting the boss if they actually really like them, or it can be a, I don't want to add to the boss's plate, or I'm really not sure what reaction I'm going to get. By the leader being resilient, they're creating that really kind of safe environment for people to express things that they need to express. And the leader's also modeling them to behave the right way. If, if a leader's act, just say, um, I don't know, just say acting, responding aggressively to somebody because of stress, that almost by default gives permission for the staff to do it as well. And the opposite is true. If the leader doesn't do it, then it's really implied that that it's not okay for anybody else to do it as well. When we talked about this as a potential topic area, I so for some reason this resonated and I finally worked out today before we started the podcast why it resonated so much in that in the high school that my kids go to, there is a very big push to build resilient learners and resilience in the kids as they're coming up through high school. Is that, and and you may not have uh, a full response here, but this, I'm, I'm looking for an opinion more than uh, facts on the ground, but if you have them, great. My question is around, do you think if schools are doing this, then the ability to build resilience is not something we're good at in early life, as well as into adulthood, into that work space, hence why people need help with resilience building in an organisational context? I think it's not something that is natural to most people. And I'm, I am so pleased that you're saying that your kid's school is doing it because that's a fairly new thing. And I've actually tried in the past kind of um, getting into schools because I'm quite passionate about, I mean, the formative years are when you've actually really got a got better chance of really helping people and setting them up them up for life. So I'm so pleased that your kids schools doing it and I hope a lot more do and it becomes a key thing because yes it, it it's to answer your question I don't think it's something that's natural and it's something that people benefit a lot from 
being educated on and building it in themselves and really realizing the importance of it. Now, I think I've also heard it described as grit, which I think is a great way of putting it too, is that it's, there's a really good, gosh, somebody Duckworth, a lady, there's a TED Talk. There's a great TED Talk about grit, yes. I can't remember her first name. Duckworth, I think, is her second name. But, yeah, basically saying the ability to, to we're not going to take out the stresses in our life. Like we live in a stressful society, but the better that we handle it, the better we're in a really good mental, physical state ourselves because stress causes all sorts of physical issues. We're in a better state and we're better to handle things and create a life that we want rather than just responding to the stresses. Um, having a toxic workplace can lead to social issues in that workspace as well as physical impacts from the toxic space is someone who doesn't have a strong resilient um, resilience in their life can that lead to physical ailments if that's not the case absolutely now i'm not a doctor i'm going to preface this i'm a, I'm a qualified health coach but I'm not a doctor. But there are all sorts of statistics out there that basically there is a very strong correlation with health issues resulting. Not being a doctor, I'll talk about me personally. So when I was, you mentioned in the intro um, a few years back that I was in not a great state myself and was quite stressed. And that's kind of what set me off down this path originally. At the time, the physical symptoms that were happening in me, I had a major shoulder issue going on. And I basically worked out that it that it had to do with stress. And that's actually not uncommon. It's it's almost like if you think the physical thing of having the weight of the world on your shoulders. So I basically had a frozen shoulder and had issues with my shoulder, things like sleeping issues, general aches and pains. And all of that is really common. And that's almost like the surface stuff. So, so that's for me personally. Again, I'm not a doctor, but there have been links to a lot more serious things as well. So yeah, I, I, I don't want to say anything because I don't have medical qualification to say it but yeah there are definitely statistics and a lot of doctors I think I read some some statistic in in America said something like 70 percent of doctors visits either directly or indirectly are related to stress I think if you build your level of resilience that doesn't necessarily mean that things won't get to you in that workplace is that correct it's not a shield that will stop stress completely is that right Correct. And that's why when I defined resilience to start with, I talked about the two sides. So the second side is when you are when you do have your resilience tested, spotting it early and be having that self-awareness and bringing yourself back to calm. But you're absolutely right. I mean, a, a really good example, I've actually recorded a video that I'll be releasing on my channel, which was basically about a personal incident over the weekend where I had my resilience really tested. And my reflection on that was quite interesting because yes, I had my resilience tested. And I really, in hindsight, wasn't wasn't operating from the most rational point of view. And that's actually one of the side effects of being stressed, that the operation of the the thinking part of the front part of your brain slows down or is impaired I wasn't acting rationally I actually picked up the phone and spoke to a friend and he he made a very very small suggestion and I kind of brushed it off to start with and then thought about it later and went okay that makes a lot of sense and then did that self-awareness thinking okay that's what was happening. Self-awareness, bring myself back to calm and then think through. So me as somebody who specialises in resilience and lives and breathes resilience, still had my resilience tested. So to answer your question, 
absolutely everybody still gets affected by that. Because I think sometimes people think if you master being resilient or if you can get the, the tips and tricks to try and deal with a toxic workplace, that suddenly that's going to stop every little thing from happening or getting to you. And unfortunately, human beings, what they are, being what we are, it's it's possible that you'll have a lapse in getting back to calm or, or reacting in a, a sensible, rational way. Over to you, Ben. On a number of issues there, Jody, I'm keen to still unpack those. The one thing you said in your opening remarks about how a leader can impart that resilience but equally uh, work better with themselves. I think in our conversations on toxic leadership, Eric and I have found that we find that the leaders that lack resilience can tend to exhibit behaviours which are very toxic. So would you agree that the lack of resilience is certainly a factor in toxic workplaces? 100%. Okay. Good start. So with that with that said, how can, say, an employee or a staff member of an environment where leaders lack resilience, how can they best respond in those environments? Such a good question. Um, the first thing, uh, again, comes back to themselves. So having stuff in themselves to look after themselves. So, for example, if they're not really operating from a resilient point of view, they're likely to then finish their work day and go home and, and go mad at the kids or the dog or the, the partner. They need to kind of work out things in themselves so that they're in an okay position in themselves and can think through logically. So from that position, if they're in an okay position, they're a lot more likely to be able to look at that toxic behaviour from a leader and go, logically, how am I best to handle this? And it's going to be very different in different workplaces and for every individual what the best option is. For some people, it's, okay, I'm better off um, looking for another job. That's a reality for a lot of people. It could be going to, and Simon Sinek's a big um, proponent of this, going to the to the boss and realising they're, they're stressed and go, I notice that you've been kind of, acting a bit out of your normal character at the moment. I'm really worried about you. Are you okay? Now, most people won't do that because it's their boss. Yeah. But the bottom line is, is their boss is a person just like they are. Correct. And people, when they're struggling, usually need care and understanding. Mm. So if you're not in a great place as the employee in yourself, you're not really able to think logically and, and think through and do that because you're probably mm. acting from an emotional place. Yourself. So how an, how, how an employee is res, best to respond to that is a very individual thing. So I'm almost given two extreme examples there of one, the real empathy kind of talk to the leader point of view as a person, and the other one is going, well, this isn't great for me. I want to go elsewhere. And there's all mm. sorts of other things that you can do in there as well. I really like that answer from a number of ways. I'm a student of Simon Sinek, and I'm pretty sure I've got to start with why sitting behind me. But I also like the idea that I'm drawing from your comments, Jody, which is, and this is a hypothesis of mine, but I'll ask if you can either refute or support it. And that is, does vulnerability build resilience? Oh, I love that. You're Bren Brene, Brene Brown. Brene Brown. I love her book, Dare to Lead. So, We've got a lot in common of interest here, Ben. We, well, I'm looking forward to reading your book now. So, <laughs> so, so many books, so little time, hey? Well, look, I have to admit, and my wife would like to probably point out the fact that I don't read books, I listen to them. Uh, my favourite subscription is Audible, and I listen to them in the car every day to and from work because it's um, traffic. But anyway, uh, let's get back to Jody. I'm interested to hear your point about that, whether 
and I haven't read anything that says this, but I wonder if vulnerability builds resilience. I haven't thought of it in those terms, but I think you're actually correct. It's not something I've really thought through in full, but it makes sense. If we're vulnerable and we're expressing our vulnerability, we're more likely to connect with people on an emotional, deeper level. And that way, I mean, you talk about my example with my friend over the weekend, the fact that I reached out to him and didn't just stay running around in my head, reached out to him and connected and basically showed to him that I was really struggling with something that led me to kind of listen to his suggestion and correct my behavior so that's a good example of it I think you're absolutely spot on that if we're vulnerable we're we're more like vulnerability I've found normally goes with connection and relationships and connection relationships and having those really honest relationships where it's not just surface and it's not just superficial and it's and it's actually dealing with people on an empathetic person-to-person emotional level means that we're better able, we feel more supported, we feel cared for, we feel heard, which all is is related to resilience. I think you're spot on. Creating a culture that fosters resilience. Jody. how do we do that? How do we mould some clay and and get some resilience building in a culture and an organisation? Yep. So the first step from an organisational point of view is actually get a really accurate picture of what's going on. Yeah, there's not a, a formula of here, this, this will fix everything. So the first step is work out what the problem was. Now, what I find with a lot of organisations is that their way of working out the well-being of their staff and the engagement of their staff is through things like engagement surveys. And while they are useful, they are not the be-all and end-all and can be quite misleading in the information that they give. So I would say the first step is to do a a real deep dive into the culture. And a lot of organisations will get outside consultants like myself um, to do this. And so, for example, what I would do is look at, from a quantitative point of view, things like the engagement surveys, but also things like employee staff turnover and productivity and your, your basic metrics that most businesses have and then from a qualitative point of view have some really deep dive conversations with some key people and not just key people as in your c-suite managers key people from every department at every level in the organization um, and get a and get a really good um, overview of where people are at because if you do that one-on-one deep dive conversation and you've got the rapport about you that you can build up trust with the person you're talking to they're a lot more likely to actually really give you the honest open picture and then if you combine that all together through people throughout the organization you get a pretty clear picture so from there you then go okay what needs to happen here in order to address these issues and that's a whole range of things. It, it could be something really high level, like there's no common purpose and vision in this organisation, that we're all just doing our job and we don't really have a concept of where this fits in the whole thing. So that's one of the possible solutions. It could be things like there's no creation of really good quality leadership and mentoring of really good quality leadership, which is probably one of the most common ones that, that I think are out there. People are thrown into leadership roles and it's not a natural innate ability. Um, So in a lot of organisations, they really do need things like um, training, mentoring, coaching programs to develop really good quality leadership. 
because most people, the reality is they're thrown into jobs or they go, yeah, I can do leadership and they step in. They make lots of mistakes and create lots of issues, whether they're relationship issues or whether they're process issues or whatever. Um, yeah, they, they learn by mistakes. So a lot of the time leadership programs can make an enormous difference. And there's also, again, it depends on what comes out in that deep dive original as to what the issue is and then how to address it. A couple of things just on that that I just want to pick up on. One of the comments that you made was about the employee surveys and the like. And I've had a fair bit of experience with employee surveys, climate surveys, 360 degree feedback, etc. And I do find that there is a, dare I say, reluctance to really say how it really is in the organisation. And, you know, some of those, let's call them feedback mechanisms, come back to the C-suite and they go, oh, look, everything's fine. No one's really, everyone's in happy and that sort of stuff. But how do you think, other than maybe, I'm thinking even exit interviews, and you, you mentioned a few different things, how do you really think you can get the best pulse of an organisation when it comes to these things like toxic leadership, like resilience, like quality leadership and those sort of things? Again, it's that underlying trust. So when you talk about engagement surveys, how they're worded makes a big difference and how people perceive the anonymity of them makes a big difference. So that's going back to that as to whether people feel safe to actually voice their full opinion. If there is an underlying trust and an underlying rapport, I think you get a much better picture. Now, the reason why I say that, again, this is why I talk about the qualitative and the quantitative way of getting a pulse, because that one-on-one relationship, if somebody doesn't trust, whether it's a, the screen that they're filling in a form in front of them, or whether it's the person in front of them, there's they don't feel safe, and they don't feel trust to actually voice their opinion and voice their concerns, they generally won't. It's, it's a self-protection mechanism. So, that underlying trust is probably the absolute key. And this is why organisations, there's a real benefit sometimes of actually getting somebody who has nothing to do with the organisation in as an outside person to actually really take that pulse. Um, we may have covered this off, but I'm interested to sort of get a bit more detail around how this can manifest itself. But a lack of resilience, Jody, how do you think it really does look in an organisation, be it large or small? So if we talk from an organisational perspective, it's it can look at things like high staff turnover. So what's your percentage of staff every year that that go enough and walk out the door? What's your absentee rate? Do you most of your staff basically use up their sickies every year or do they build them up and not take them? Things like um, has there been a major drop in productivity? Is there innovation and new ideas coming out? Is there a situation where people, if somebody needs help or needs training or needs support, that there's that environment where they will actually reach out to each other? So all of these things, if they're not there, they're basically showing there's a lack of resilience and there's a real cultural problem. And some places you can even just walk into them and feel the vibe. If you're one of these people who picks up on on that intangible kind of vibe of places, it can be really obvious. Like I've walked into some, I'll give you an example, just just before the December before COVID hit, I was in Europe. So I was sitting, I don't speak French and I was sitting in a cafe in France and I was watching because nobody, I was there by myself, nobody around and I was watching the dynamics between the staff and went, oh, this isn't a good culture. And not understanding a word that they were saying, I could pick up the dynamics. So it's 
survive. It's, and I know that sounds kind of really. Dennis Denudo-ish. Sorry? <laughs> I said it sounds very Dennis Denudo-ish, but, <laughs> but that's a compliment. Um. <laughs> it sounds very woohoo, but yeah, but it looks like, like a, a tense culture. It looks like an undercurrent of not happy or aggravation or annoyance or um, things like not wanting to go that extra mile. There's, there's yeah. Did that I often, answer the question a bit? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting you raise that because I, I haven't joined the dots, but I will now. That I have seen that a lot and, and I like to think I can put a, a finger on a pulse like that sometimes as well, even in like a, you know, a retail or a hospitality environment. But I, I sometimes do see it in environments that I consult to where you might have, dare I say, a very autocratic leader. Uh, well, actually, let me rephrase that, a very autocratic boss. Uh, and then another staff member in the same meeting room as them and having a what you'd think is a three-way conversation, but the, uh, the employee ha- always having to sort of monitor what they say and the, the, the checking to their right to see if the boss is okay or what they're saying and all those various things. You can kind of pick up a pulse there that there is potential threats and there's potential for that individual to perhaps get into trouble later for saying the wrong thing. Uh, environments like that I can kind of see are not overly collaborative and, and may have those other indicators you mentioned, Jody, i.e. High, high absenteeism, high turnover. I love the example you use, Jody. I think uh, when you've got a couple of years under your belt in the, in the world of work, I think you build up your radar to pick up whether a workplace that you're visiting has a good vibe or not. I have to echo Ben's comments. I caught up with a childhood friend of mine. We graduated from the same high school. Now, he was an ex-educator who's now built an education consulting business and is doing very well. And he happened to invite me to his premises and he, he bought a house and turned that into an office space at people would have a comfortable environment to work in and he, he didn't want the corporate culture so they go in shorts and the corporate t-shirt and it's a very relaxed atmosphere and I have to say as soon as I walked in there and went into the brains trust area where the computers and the desks were it felt like an awesome place to be in and everyone was smiling and when the boss walked by they'd wave say day, um, have a joke at his expense and he'd keep walking he had a huge grin on his face and you could tell people wanted to be in that environment so much so after I spoke with him, I'm going, wow, how could I get into working with him at whatever capacity? Because this seems like a good place to work in. But that's not always the case when you go to different workplaces. But I, I think, uh, and given the title of this podcast, if we're talking about leadership, if you find workplaces like that, then it's on, um, I say, I, I I firmly believe that the leader sets the culture in an organization. If the culture is toxic, people aren't as resilient as they could be. You can easily turn that lens to the person or persons that set what that culture looks like. And I'm a big believer in you walk by the culture you accept. And if it's a a toxic one and, and bosses are happy to have that there or are unaware of it, it says something about the leadership in a place, not necessarily the people in the organization. That That's a personal view, but it's, it's true of the place. Places that I've had some encounters with. Do you have a thought on that, Jody? Hundred percent agree. Leaders set the tone, so they set the culture. It, it, the larger the organisation, the harder that is to kind of control or to turn around. So, just say you have a very large corporate and somebody stepped in as a CEO, but they've stepped in where there's an existing culture. That's probably not so much. How how big was the organisation that you just described? So, something like a team of ten. That boss has a 
personal relationship to some degree of everybody in that organization. So 100%, that sort of size, the leader sets the tone. As you get as a larger organization, it's a little bit trickier. The concept's still there, but because you get layers of leadership and structures of leadership, and sometimes, as I said, you can step in as a CEO or as a leader, and you've basically got a legacy of possibly issues or not issues, it's it's not as transparent. But the general concept, I think you're 100% correct, leader sets the tone. Is it acceptable in a big organization for the CEO or the senior leaders to be that many degrees separated from their organization that it's almost an excuse for them to say, well, the culture is what it is. I can't change it because of the size of the place. If you're any good at being a leader, should you not have your finger on the pulse of what's potentially happening. So if you've got a a workplace that's not as resilient as it could be, or if there is a toxic element to the organization, shouldn't you know if if the buck stops with you as a leader, shouldn't you have some idea of what's happening at that level? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Which is why I kind of said, made the point before of when you're getting a pulse in the organization, talk at people at all the different levels. If you've got a CEO who only talks to his C-suite team, He's not going to have, he or she, are not going to have a pulse on the organisation. No way. And I think any smart leader will actually know that culture is a major part of a, of a, of a productive organisation. I'm not saying every leader does, but every good leader does because it, if you show the tie to leaders of how culture relates to absenteeism, staff turnover, productivity, and you, you, you line that up with for a product driven organization how that all affects profitability it's actually as a leader really really important and they should see it as really important i think most leaders do but to varying degrees um i like the discussion about in the last few minutes about how we can you know see the impact of those leaders but one of the things that i will just jump in and say to link back to something you said a while back, Jody, and that is the leaders that are promoted from, say, technical roles and really don't have the, let's say, formal training or even any form of coaching or mentoring and any mirroring examples of good quality leaders in the past. How would you recommend that a small business like the size of 10 or even 20 or 30, whether it be formally or informally, coach and train good quality leaders to come through their organisation? Such a good question because I think it is so important and it is so often missed. So what most businesses do is send people on like a foundational kind of leadership course, which I agree that's great, but it's only step one. So some sort of foundational leadership concept course, like there's lots of them around, how to how to lead people because lead Leading people is the main part of leadership that leaders find challenging when they go up from those technical roles. They know how to do the job, but they don't necessarily know how to lead other people doing the job. So, the first, yeah, the first step's a foundational leadership thing. The second step, for a lot of cases, I think it's a combination of coaching where they work with somebody with a, somebody who's a leadership coach on who's outside the organisation a lot of the time. You can have them inside, 
but it has actually real benefits to having outside. Works with them in terms of working through their challenges and working through their, their goals in terms of their development. And the other side to it is an inside the organisation mentoring. So you mentioned things like having somebody who they could mirror off. If you have a situation where somebody who is an experienced, capable, good leader of people takes that new leader under their wing and mentors them, it can be enormously powerful. So I would actually recommend a combination of of coaching and internal mentoring to really get the best benefit and the best development of that leader in the shortest possible time. And I've seen a number of leaders that in various positions where I've spoken to them, I've given them phrases such as, it should be your role and responsibility to make yourself redundant. It should be your role to build capability around you to exit the workplace and have someone follow you. And just to get, again, to go back to those concepts you referred to briefly, I find that that's a very foreign thing for many people to think about, that their role as a leader is to develop others, to replace them. Whereas, you know, many I've spoken to are very much around, well, I'm just here for a short time and I'm going to make the most out of it and just leave. You know, so yeah, when I mentioned, I remember vividly speaking to a guy about making himself redundant and he laughed at me. He absolutely laughed at me for the comment. And I was like, so you don't think it's a responsibility of yours to build the people around you? No, they'll work the way I tell them to. I'm like, yeah, that, that was a toxic workplace, by the way. In a hundred words or less, how do we get rid of them from the gene pool, Jody? Go. I would actually, I'll add to that too. The other one that, that I totally agree with what you're saying, Ben, but the other one I'd add is we've always done it this way. How do we get rid of them? Oh. You can't get rid of them, Eric, because that means people like Jody and I will be out of the job. <laughs> we have to work uh, with them. To... <laughs> okay. How, how do we uh, – sorry, what, what's the more um, politically correct term? How do we rehabilitate uh, yeah, the, these recalcitrant? How <laughs> do we do that, Jody? It's interesting. When I look at leaders, I almost find they fit into three categories when it comes to culture. There's the ones who are basically what Ben describes and they're it's their way, they know what they're doing, people who work for them do as they're told, that sort of stuff. In most cases as a consultant, I kind of go, one of the things with coaching, the person who's being coached has to be in on the coaching and has to be the primary driver of their coaching and their own improvement. If you've got somebody who's got that stubbornness about themselves as a coach, you generally can't, I mean, I might be admitting defeat here, but yet you can't, if somebody's that stubborn, think of the personal relationship, if somebody's that stubborn, it is very hard to shift them. They have to decide to be shifted or to be open to other ideas. So yeah, in terms of how do you deal with that? Yeah, not sure. As as a coach, if I get that from the CEO, it's different if it's not from the CEO, it's from different levels. But if that's from the CEO, I, I generally go, okay, great. I wish you all the best. It, that is, I have to, sorry to jump in, Eric, but um, Jody, there's such a good point. And I would like just to use a quick anecdote to support that. And and the, the point I want to reinforce is your comment there about the coached must be bought, bought into the process because in many a circumstance I've seen, and one really sticks out in about a year ago where I was asked to provide some support to a legal firm that operationally was in, but just in chaos. And when I went in there, it was quickly evident to me that the problem was the uh, one of the managing, one of the principals. So in order to get that change that I needed, 
just effectively to fix the organization's back office and all the processes and procedures that make a law firm operate. I had to convince this partner that she was a problem. And then she determined that she wasn't a problem. And with the vast array of changes we made, that person eventually was exited. So I think that, Jody, your point is absolutely golden in the fact that in order to adopt change, one must realise the change exists. The old saying, in order to fix a problem, you may have to admit you've got it in the first place. And I think as consultants, we can sometimes identify problems that some people find a little bit hard to swallow. Absolutely, 100%. And and I'm not saying I would just spot that straight away and walk away. I would have the conversation and the deep, deep mm-hmm. conversation with that leader. But if I got that definite, and this was, I'm talking about CEO level, if yeah. I've got that definite, no, I'm not, there's nothing wrong, I'm not the problem, it's it's X, Y, and Z person who who is problem, yeah, you're not going to shift it really unless that person is coachable and is open. As you said, the first step to actually fixing a problem is to realise you've got the problem and the problem isn't always outside of yourself. Sometimes it's a self-reflection going, ah, yeah. The fact that you might walk away from a consultancy because you can't move the CEO because he or she is that stubborn that they, they can't possibly have enough uh, self-reflection to go, maybe it is me, to have that open conversation. That's probably not a bad thing. I've, I've heard it in a couple of the podcasts that some people have told me. I think I spoke to you about this as well, Ben, that sometimes there are some customers or clients you just need to walk away from. And the, the guilty, you can't help the organization get over that hump. But if the person leading the place or the owner of the business can't see beyond their own potential uh, shortcomings, then it's going to make your life difficult and uh, a waste of your own time to be in that organization. I've, I've, I've seen it, I've heard it happening before and um, yeah, unfortunately there are the uh, the unmovable individuals in the world and I hope never to run into them again in my professional life. They, they exist, I know that they're out there and I know I will bump into them again but I think uh, for me it's a bit of empathy on my part or at least putting myself in their shoes and maybe thinking this person doesn't have the skills to recognise that there is a problem because maybe they got so jaded in life that they don't want to see those problems problems and there's a deeper discussion to be had about that not not one for this particular podcast about people's psychological makeup but those bad leaders exist and and it's 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 i believe in my heart that there's a spectrum from the very good leaders who are intuitively good at what they do to the very bad and hopefully as we navigate careers that if we're good at what we do in the leadership space we help to foster and create the good leaders in the world This has been a fantastically good podcast. I want to give yourself and Ben the last, the last thoughts here on resilience. So we'll start with um, you, Jody. Any final thoughts? I would say that from an individual point of view, it empower yourself. There are ways that you can build your own resilience. You don't have to be a victim to your circumstances. There are ways to develop yourself. And from, from a leadership point of view, it's absolutely in leaders' best interest to develop their own resilience and to create a culture of resilience. And I'll just tie back, Eric, quickly to, to what you said around the, the toxic leaders. I think it is shifting. I think those leaders, they still absolutely exist, but they're becoming a over time a smaller and smaller percentage. So most people were not perfect, but most people are coachable. So I, I, because it sounded quite negative before, and the same, most most people are coachable. I think those uncoachable people are, are the the exception. Fair so, and, and I would agree with that to kick off my little uh, closing. 
comments. I think Jody, hundred percent agree. I think that that let's say the market just won't tolerate toxic poor leaders anymore. And you know when it manifests itself in in such things as significant turnover, God forbid, uh, mental health challenges and other even worse uh, outcomes. I don't think the market just uh, has any tolerance whatsoever for that anymore. And we're seeing little snippets in, in the, the, the press about how particularly long-term senior leader of, of any organisation suddenly is exited by the board due to inappropriate behaviours and those sort of things. So we're starting to see that level of tolerance is really becoming uh, non-existent. The one thing I will just like to add, and I'm, again, I, I am going to go rogue here, Eric, is I want to throw to our esteemed guest and ask the question we ask at the end of every podcast, which is not just about toxic leadership, but about leadership in general and i do want to get a hold of your book when it does eventually go to press jody but please answer this question for me or us sorry eric leaders are they born or are they made oh i love that question (laughs) i find very few people are natural leaders they do exist but the the exception most people they're they're made it's something that's pretty definitive we usually get a 50 50 we get a couple of fence sitters a 70 30 was my answer about eight months ago eric yeah, that's that's great, Jody. Uh, it's rare to see someone go. No, the the natural boy ones—they're few and far between. You, you need to make them. Um, I think I might be moving to more towards that camp. I was a fifty-fifty person, but maybe I'm being overly generous. Maybe it's it really is. You need to develop and uh, build your leaders. So yeah, a, a interesting response, Jody. Thank you for that. Can I just ask Ben, what's seventy thirty? Which one's which? Oh, I was in the seventy oh, is made and thirty is born. Okay. So- uh, a little bit of both, but um, I am most certainly a strong advocate of leaders are made. And it probably just leads back, and without extending this conversation too far, is those uncoachables and those people have a think about where they came from and what what made them who they are today. And I think that that says a lot. And I do get a lot of people in the profession I work with uh, where they say, well, that's how I had it, so my staff can have it too. And, you know, you kind of think, well, you know, if you suffered, then why impart that on others as well? So if you knew it was wrong, then you are coachable. Sounds like the same, I'll, I'll try to uh, moderate my language here, the same crap you hear in uh, people that are in trades that, well, I had it tough for four years and made no money and you've got to go through the, the trials and tribulations. Well, how much of a better employee and, and professional person are you going to get if you pay them well and you treat them properly in the job while, while they're an apprentice before they become fully qualified? And I, I get the sense that that apprenticeship period is the same thing you see in the legal profession in which you work ben is that is that is there some truth to that uh partially yeah there, there's certainly um you know to use my military re- references time in rank that has to be served and you know you even see the remuneration markets based upon post admission experience and how many years you've served or whatever but uh that's becoming challenged i think or disruptive would probably be the better phrase where good quality lawyers who provide great service are good leaders you know three to four years and they're starting to push the partnership ranks it's happening and i think that's a good thing so look uh jody and ben thank you for your time particularly jody thank you for uh, agreeing to be on the podcast I'll, i'll get um some details to the listeners in the podcast description. Final word to you, Jody. Just, yeah, thank you for, for having me on. Um, with your permission, I'll do a quick plug on the book. Of course, of course. Yep. So as Eric mentioned before, I've got a book coming out basically focused towards leaders and it's called World Class Leadership and it's it's 
around patterns that I see of major issues culturally in different organizations. So it's it's a it's it's pretty much a self-awareness piece where leaders can look through and go, ah, oh, yep, that one applies to me, that one applies to me, that sort of stuff. So anybody who's interested in that, you can go onto my website, which is ww.jodywalkling.com. Look, thank you again. For those listening, this has been Talking Leadership. Thank you for following the podcast and your support of what we're doing here and having discussions around this thing called leadership. Thanks, everyone, and we'll catch you all on the next podcast.